following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it's good as we start the book of Acts, it's good to be together as we open God's word. And let me just say one thing before we get going, which is that we have probably dozens, maybe a hundred plus, maybe 200 middle schoolers and high schoolers who are worshiping Jesus right now at their winter retreat. And so we're going to pray for them so that they would see Jesus clearly and that God would work wonders among them as well. So would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, we ask that you would come now in the power of your spirit to exalt Christ. Here in this gathering to all those watching online, to those in the chapel, and even among the middle school and high school students that are away. Use the preaching of your word. Empower the preaching of your word through your spirit so that you would open eyes and hearts to your truth. And use that truth to cause our hearts to burn with joy and conviction and gladness and confidence in Christ. Do this this morning so that we would go from here as witnesses of Christ as we eagerly anticipate and wait for your return. And so may the meditations of my mouth, meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we are starting a new series in the book of Acts. And right at the outset, I want to give us five reasons why we're going to study the book of Acts. We have 66 books to choose from, so why are we choosing Acts and why right now? So let me give you five reasons. The first is that Acts corrects misunderstandings about the church. Acts corrects misunderstandings of the church. Those on the outside of the church look in and think these people are crazy, or perhaps it's some weird cult, some man-made institution. And unfortunately, the church, capital C, the worldwide church, has had its own issues, whether it's scandals or moral failings of its leaders or the prosperity gospel the American church continues to export, or many churches and denominations have abandoned the Bible's teaching on sexuality or marriage. And yet within the church, there are some who are quick to criticize the church, or neglect participation in the church, or to even content to remain on the fringe. You've probably heard the statement, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. And that sentiment reflects the feeling of many. I'm I'm spiritual, I want to follow Jesus, but I have no room, I have no desire to be part of the church or any organized religion. And that statement misunderstands that the church is God's chosen instrument of change and transformation in the world. This is not a man-made institution, but it's God's institution. It is the church of Christ. Number two, Acts helps us to see the ongoing centrality of Jesus. Acts helps us to see that Jesus is the central character 
in all of the Bible and even in the book of Acts. It's not as though Jesus ascends, looks down and says, good luck, disciples. And then the disciples are the creative geniuses that through their strategy and analytical skill, figure out how to get the gospel to the very ends of the earth. That couldn't be further from the truth. Not only is Jesus central to the book of Acts and central to the early church, what Acts is doing is Acts records the ongoing work of the ascended and exalted Christ. And we'll see more of that in just a bit. Number three, Acts unveils the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit. He called him the helper or an advocate or a counselor. And in John 14, it says that he will teach you all things. He will bring Jesus' teaching to mind. He will be with us forever. And he's going to guide us in all truth and even indwell believers. And Acts is where we see that coming true. That the Spirit has finally come. Number four, Acts reveals the mission of the church. In today's age, there's much confusion about what is the mission of the church? What's the church to be about? Should we be political? Should we care about physical suffering? Should we focus on mercy and justice or discipleship and local evangelism and global missions? Acts reveals the central mission of the church. The church exists to proclaim the name of Jesus and to make disciples as his spirit empowered witnesses to the very ends of the earth. In a time where some churches and denominations have downplayed or minimized or even abandoned the bold proclamation of the gospel, we want to be a church that holds out the preaching of Jesus boldly and unapologetically every single week. If you don't hear the name of Jesus from this pulpit, something's wrong. Number five, Acts helps us to understand our place in redemptive history. It's so easy sometimes to think the world revolves around me, that we are at the center of God's plan. Many are wondering right now what will happen to God's unfolding plan of redemption if churches in America lose their tax-exempt status, or perhaps if pastors get arrested for calling certain types of behaviors sin. Or if America goes further down the drain in terms of its morality and ethics. And what will happen to God's unfolding plan of redemption? Absolutely nothing. God's church marches onward. Yes, life might get harder for us in the meantime, and yet nothing stops in terms of Christ's church and the advance of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, I will build my church, and even Satan, demons, or the gates of hell will not be able to withstand or restrain the advance and the marching onward of Christ's church. And the sooner we realize that God doesn't need us, And yet he invites us in to be part of his unfolding plan of redemption, the better. But even as our freedoms and liberties disappear, Christ's church marches onward. So those are the five reasons. We want to understand the church, the centrality of Jesus, the work of the Spirit, 
our mission and marching orders, and then where we are at in redemptive history. But I lied. There's a sixth bonus reason. This year, we are celebrating the 150th anniversary of Bethlehem's existence. Now, my guess is that most of us don't kind of feel the weight of that quite like maybe celebrating your 30th wedding anniversary. Because at least for your wedding anniversary, you were there from the very beginning. And you can remember all 30 years and the highs and the lows and the difficulties and the joys. And yet with 150 years, none of us were there at the beginning. Many of us don't even know the history. And my guess is many of us actually don't care all that much. We care more about the next five years of where we're going as a church rather than the past 150. And to that, I say, fair enough. And yet, let me give one reason why I think it's important that we celebrate this 150th anniversary. Our 150th anniversary celebration is not to pat ourselves in the back as though we did something. This 150 years is about engaging in the work of remembering what God has done in and through weak and imperfect people for his glory. Look at what God has done. Look at what Jesus is doing in and through his church. And he's kept us faithful for 150 years. And if he doesn't return for the next 150, may we continue to preach Christ from every pulpit until he returns. So we're praising God for his sustaining grace to this tiny little local expression of his global kingdom and asking for more of his future grace until he returns. So our celebration is not to say, look how great we've been. Look at all the ministries we started. The point is that we would say in the words of Psalm 126 verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. And we are glad. Amen? So, before we jump into our passage, I want to just give a little bit more background on the book of Acts. Acts was written by the physician Luke, who was both a contemporary and a travel companion of Paul. He's mentioned in Paul's letter to the Colossian church where it says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And so, Luke was traveling around with many of the disciples, and he took down detailed notes so that he could lay out this carefully written historical record of the early church. And Luke wrote Acts for a man named Theophilus, who was probably a wealthy Roman official and probably a young Christian who said, I want to know about this. And so he likely commissioned Luke to put this work together. Theophilus is mentioned in Luke 1, 3, and then again in Acts 1, 1. And the main thing we need to know is that Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. So when you're watching maybe part two of a movie, the first couple of minutes of the part two kind of go back and situate you with where part one ended. And that's in many ways what is taking place in our passage. It helps situate us where the gospel of Luke ended. And the main point of our passage this morning is that the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ continues working to establish his kingdom. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ continues working to establish his kingdom. Our passage shows us that Jesus didn't just float up into the air and then check out. 
You know, I'm retired now. Call me in a couple thousand years when I come back. No, the Lord Jesus Christ is working right now in and through his church, in and through his apostles and his disciples through the power of the Spirit. And so my plan this morning is for us to look at this passage in four sections, four points. Jesus establishes the continuity of the kingdom. Jesus sends the power of the kingdom. Jesus commissions the witnesses of the kingdom. And then Jesus gives the assurance of the kingdom. And my aim this morning is that we would be so stunned and excited as we see what Jesus is doing and has done and will do in and through his church so that we would get on board and participate in that good and glorious mission. God is doing a work through his people as they're indwelt by the Spirit for the advance of the kingdom of God so that It would be as the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ as the waters cover the sea. So, the continuity of the kingdom. That's our first point. The continuity of the kingdom in verses 1 through 3. Look with me at verse 1. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication here is that Luke's gospel records what Jesus began to do and teach. But notice that word, began. The implication is that Acts is the continuation of the work and ministry of Jesus. Jesus continues working in the book of Acts. It's not as though he just leaves and then leaves the plans and the power for the disciples to figure out. Acts is commonly called the Acts of the Apostles, but I think it would be more accurate to call this book the Acts of Jesus Christ. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's sitting on his throne, exalted in all of his splendor and glory. And what's he doing? He's working in and through his spirit and through his apostles. He's doing and teaching through the spirit. Now in verse 2, It says Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit throughout his earthly ministry, and he gave commands. But probably what Luke is pointing out is something that was recorded by the gospel writer of John in 20, verse 22 where he talked about how Jesus, after his resurrection, he said to his disciples, he breathed on them, and then he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And likely, he did that so that they would be able to receive and understand the commands that he gave. And the point of drawing out that Jesus gave commands through the Holy Spirit is that not only during Jesus' earthly ministry did he give commands and minister through the power of the Spirit, Now, when Jesus is physically absent, he's going to continue to give commands and minister through the power of the Spirit. The rule and reign of Jesus doesn't stop, but continues. Now, in verse 3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. When did Jesus appear to his disciples? It's recorded in Luke 24 to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then later he 
dines with the disciples, eats with them, and explains to them the scriptures. 1 Corinthians even records that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Why does Luke make this a point to draw out that Jesus appeared to them? I think it's because of this. It matters because if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we should all go home. There is no faith without the resurrection of Jesus. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 14, 17, and 19. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And if Christ If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. This is a terrible life if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. It's not just a good feel-good thing. Even if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's good that you come to church and it's good that we preach. No. If Jesus is dead, we have nothing. We live terrible lives. But the opposite is also true, is it not? If Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, that means faith in Jesus is never in vain. And for some of us this morning, we need this truth to land on us with fresh power. Because too often we live our lives as if the resurrection never happened. We're lukewarm. We're half-hearted. We trifle with sin. We're constantly worrying. I have a newsflash for you. Jesus is alive. We have eternal hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not have to worry about what the Democrats or the Republicans are trying to do. You don't have to fret for Christ's church. You don't have to fret about the future. You don't have to fret about whatever legislation or executive orders are being signed. Jesus Christ is alive, seated on his throne, and he's working in and through his church for his glory and for our what? everlasting joy. God is on his throne. He's not buried somewhere. And so if all we have is Jesus in this life, even if you lose your freedoms, you lose your family, you lose your money, you lose your retirement nest egg, you lose all that you have, you get persecuted or you become an outcast. We have everything that we would possibly ever need because we have Jesus. And so Luke draws out that the resurrection of Christ changes everything. Now I want to draw out one other thing. In verse 3 it says that Jesus was speaking about the kingdom of God. Throughout the gospel of Luke, Jesus taught and preached the kingdom of God. And even in the very last verse of the last chapter of the book of Acts, it talks about the kingdom. Turn there. Acts 28, verse 31, and it says that Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a central theme that runs throughout the book of Acts, that the kingdom of God, namely the rule and reign of Jesus, has begun and it's being extended, and it's advancing. So there's continuity between Luke and Acts. All that Jesus began to do and teach, he's now continuing to do and teach in and through his people, through the power of the Spirit, 
to advance and establish his kingdom. Now, let's look at verses 4 and 5 as we come to the power of the kingdom. Jesus gives the power of the kingdom. Verse 4 says, And while they were staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So let me ask the question, why do the disciples need the promise of the Father? Because they need power. And so the question is, why do they need power? Well, because Jesus has given them a mission. He gave them a command. We see it in Luke 24, 47. At the end of Luke's gospel, he says, Jesus says to his disciples, Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Just ponder that command for a moment. Jesus says to his disciples, you're to proclaim my name to the very ends of the earth, everywhere, beginning in Jerusalem. This is a massive task. It would have felt like a complete impossibility to the disciples. Put on my imagination cap, and and I imagine the disciples might be thinking something like this. Jesus, are you completely insane? You want us to preach about you, but people hated you so much that they wanted to kill you, and in fact, they did kill you. And now, you want us, this scraggly band of disciples, to preach you again. I don't know if you checked the polls lately, Jesus, but people don't like you very much still. How would the disciples possibly be able to preach and proclaim the name of Jesus? Well, their only hope was to receive God's spirit in order to accomplish God's work. John the Baptist prophecy in Luke 3.16 is finally coming true. He said there, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John baptized people in water, but he says Jesus is coming, and he's going to baptize in the Spirit. And during Jesus' ministry, that didn't happen, but now it's going to happen Jesus continues working to establish his kingdom by sending the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. We'll get further into the work of the Spirit as we get into chapter 2 and look at Pentecost. Now, number three, Jesus sends the witnesses of the kingdom. He commissions witnesses of the kingdom in verses 6 through 8. The disciples ask a question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I heard once that, I think it was John Calvin that said, there's more errors in this sentence than there are words. That, that might be a little bit of an overstatement. I actually don't think this is that bad of a question. During the 40 days between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, what did he do? He taught them and spoke to them about the kingdom. Actually, back in Luke twenty-two twenty-nine to 30, he was eating and drinking with his disciples, and he says that you will eat and drink at his table in his kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So the disciples want to know, is it now? Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And yet they fundamentally misunderstand the nature of this kingdom. They think it's a national kingdom. 
And they think it's a singular moment. Jesus replies in verse 7 that they are not to know the times or the seasons. At one level, he says, it's not for you to worry about. You have a task. And he gives it to them in verse 8. But at another level, he wants them to know that this is a progressively unfolding plan where the kingdom of God is both already come in the person and work of Jesus, and yet it's not yet to be fully consummated. It's an already not yet kingdom. Yet Jesus tells them to stop concerning themselves of what is not to be of concern. And I think this is such a good word, and it's a good word for some of us actually even this morning, because there's so many who want to say, oh, you, you, you see what's going on over there in, and you, you name the country, or you name the leader, and, and they begin making predictions, drawing complicated diagrams with revelation, and predicting the second coming of Christ. And if ever you hear someone predict the second coming of Christ, just go the other direction, because they have no idea what they're talking about. Jesus says it's not for us to know the days and the times and the seasons. Instead, we have marching orders as God's people to make disciples. Now, disciples want to know if Roman rule is going to be thrown off and Israel will be restored. Because they know of passages like Joel 2.28 that speak of God's spirit being poured out on both men and women, young and old. And yet there would be this day, this awesome day of judgment and restoration. So they think it's an earthly kingdom established by armies and political strength. And yet Jesus corrects their understanding because in verse 8 he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The kingdom of God would not be earthly and national, but the kingdom of God is heavenly and spiritual and universal. Christ's kingdom will extend to the very ends of the earth. And Acts 1.8 is a central verse in the entire book of Acts because the rest of the book unfolds precisely according to this geography. The disciples begin in Jerusalem, then the gospel spreads to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to what they would believe at the time is the very ends of the earth. And why does Jesus give this progression? Why is it significant? Some often read and interpret these verses as a strategy. Strategies are helpful, but can you imagine how crazy this would have sounded? It's like Pastor Sam pulling aside one of our Sunday school classes or a small group and saying, you know what, we we here at Bethlehem really want to reach the nations, and so here's your task as a Sunday school class or as a small group. We want you to evangelize all of Moundsview, and then spread out to the entire Twin Cities region, and then to the whole state of Minnesota, and then to the very ends of the earth. That's not a strategy. Jesus is giving his disciples a prophecy with short and long-term predictions that would serve to encourage his disciples. Because it sounds like a complete impossibility. The disciples cannot conceive how this happens. We have no idea how we would even begin to share the gospel with this whole city, much less the broader region. And yet they wait. The Spirit comes. Peter stands up to preach. And then how many come to faith in one day and get baptized? 3,000. And then it dawns on them. What Jesus said is true. 
He's doing that work through the power of the Spirit, and it is guaranteed. He assures his disciples that his mission is going to be accomplished. Jesus is working through his Spirit and his disciples to advance the kingdom. And for us this morning, the command for all of Christ's followers is to be Jesus' witnesses. This word is mentioned 39 times in the book of Acts. And we're not just to be nice people. We're not just to do good deeds. We're not just to hold signs or build wells or sponsor children or help cure diseases or build relationships or alleviate human suffering or combat the deadly effects of malaria, as good as many of those things are. We are called by the Lord Jesus Christ, to be his witnesses, to bear witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ, to proclaim it verbally with our words. And so the question I want to ask us this morning, do we prioritize being witnesses of Jesus? Do we prioritize being witnesses of Jesus? This is so simple and yet incredibly difficult. It's so simple because you can invite maybe an unbelieving neighbor or a family member over to your house, and one of your kids might sit there and say, do you know Jesus? He's my best friend. And he's giving witness to Jesus and his work. Or you can share the gospel in 30 seconds where you can say, we we live in a world that God created. He created it with beauty and with meaning and with purpose. He's the creator of heaven and of earth and the universe and all that it contains. And yet, as we've seen and as we can feel deep in our bones, we live in a world that is broken and corrupted. And the Bible tells us that this brokenness, this corruption, is a result of our sin. Every person has sin at work in their life, and it gives rise to all manner of brokenness, corruption, and violence. And yet, In God's kindness, he sent his son, Jesus, who was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, was resurrected to new life, and has now ascended into heaven. And all those who believe in this Jesus can be reconciled to the Father. As they repent, they can have new life, forgiveness of sins. And God even promises to give them his very spirit so that they would be able to walk in his ways. And what's needed, what's required of you, there's no hoops to jump through, no upfront fee, no club to join. All you have to do is respond in faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins and you can have this everlasting life. It's so simple. Every single one of us can do that can share those words with a family member, with friends, with acquaintances we come across? Do you prioritize being a witness of Jesus? And yet it's becoming increasingly difficult, is it not? The world absolutely hates that message. The world doesn't see Christianity as a blessing to our world, doesn't see Christians as contributing to a good and just moral world. They don't even think it's crazy anymore. They see Christianity as dangerous and subversive and hateful. And so to be a witness of Jesus will soon be off limits in the public sphere. It'll get you banned. 
It'll get you canceled and it'll get you censored or fired. And so what are we to do? What are we to do if witnessing for Jesus is no longer acceptable? We double down on proclaiming Christ, do we not? We say with the Apostle Paul, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. It is God's power to save lives. The proclamation of Jesus Christ is something that each and every single one of us can do. So while there is light out, let's be those who do not shrink back and fail to speak of what Christ has done in and through us, but that we would be bold in speaking the name of Christ near and far. Don't neglect this really important task that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. Don't worry about the future. Take full advantage of the present where we right now have the opportunity to witness to the power and to the person and to the work of the Lord Jesus. Now, he turns to give assurance of the kingdom in verses 9 to 11. And we've seen the mission is massive. Evangelize the whole world. And the point of our passage is that Jesus is the one who's working through his spirit in his disciples And so what does the ascension have to do with all of this that we see in verses 9 to 11? He actually repeats it. It showed up already at the end of Luke. At the end of Luke, he says that the disciples were rejoicing and praising God as he was ascended into heaven. I think there's two reasons he mentions the ascension again. The first is that he wants to emphasize that disciples are eyewitnesses. And the second is he wants to give them assurance of the kingdom. Now, look with me how many times he mentions either or emphasizes seeing or being eyewitnesses in verses 9 to 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, so that's one, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight, two. And while they were gazing into heaven, three, he went and behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Four, This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Five. The disciples have seen it with their own eyes. They are eyewitnesses that Jesus is ascended and not dead. But notice also what he includes in this account and what he doesn't include. He doesn't include any mention of the disciples falling down in fear when the angels sidle up next to them and have a conversation with them. And as we saw during our Advent series, anytime an angel shows up, what's the first thing they say? Fear not, because they look scary. And yet here now, the disciples are not fearful, but they're celebrating that the Lord Jesus Christ is ascended Their Savior is alive and well, ruling and reigning from on high. And then the angels ask this odd question, why are you looking up? And and it, it almost seems like completely obvious, right? Like, hello, Jesus just ascended into heaven. That's why we're looking up. But it gives an opportunity for the angels to say something that's not recorded in Luke 24. They say, That this Jesus will return in the same way. He will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
Christ is coming back. Not only is he ascended, not only is exalted, not only is he seated on his throne, not only is he working, doing and teaching in and through his disciples and through the power of his spirit, but the Lord Jesus Christ will return, which means that his commission and the mission that he's given his disciples is guaranteed. He will rightly resume rule and reign over his kingdom. And he's extending that rule and reign right now, and he will consummate his kingdom when he returns. He's coming back, be assured. So we can summarize the book of Acts with maybe a sentence like this. The book of Acts records the continuing work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit in the witness of the apostles to proclaim, establish, and advance the kingdom of God. And so we have the testimony of Luke, we have the record of the apostles, we have the word of God, so that this morning, each and every single one of us, we would be absolutely convinced that the Lord Jesus Christ is not dead but alive, that he's ascended into heaven but not checked out, he's working and doing and teaching, and he's given us his spirit. And then he's given us a commission so that we would go and make disciples, that we would proclaim Christ. And I said at the outset that my aim for us this morning is that we would be excited and amazed at what God has done, is doing, and will do in and through his people. And we, this morning, we have opportunity to proclaim the name of Jesus Only by the name of Jesus will anyone get saved. The whole world is looking for salvation. They're just finding it in all the wrong places. And here, we have the words of life. And our hope is that the Lord Jesus Christ is alive and well, working powerfully through his church. And we're assured that this mission will come to pass. As we think about sometimes our 25 by 25 initiative, one of the things we set aside was reaching 25 unengaged people groups. And I think in retrospect, most of the elders would say that was sort of a big, tall order, kind of, you know, a stretch goal, if you will. Uh, It's particularly difficult. They're unengaged and unreached for a reason. And yet we can be assured that absolutely will come to pass. Whether with Bethlehem or a dozen other churches in our lifetime or in the next lifetime, it will come to pass because the Lord Jesus Christ will surely accomplish his work. And so this morning, do you believe that Jesus is working, that he's given us his spirit, he's called us to be his witnesses, and that he's assured us that he will return? If we do, then let's go forth with complete confidence that Christ is for us, that we have the indwelling of the Spirit, that he's given us the power so that in all the moments that feel difficult, that we would be able to open our mouths and give witness to the power and to the work of Jesus so that many would come to faith in him. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. We thank you that we have hope in him, 
name we pray that you would use these words this morning to take root in our hearts and souls so that this week and as we go from here, we would open our mouths as witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, making him known. And would you be pleased to cause many to come to saving faith in you? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.